Turn with me to James chapter 1. Um, you may or may not know. Hey, Jake. Hey, Mark. How are you, man? Uh, you may or may not know that Doak and Pam left Friday uh, afternoon to go on their European vacation that the church um, graciously gave them last year for their 10th anniversary here at LifePoint. And um, I can tell you they were very excited um, when I dropped them off. And uh, they arrived in Paris safely. Um, Haven came over from Wales to meet them, and so they're spending a few days there. Uh, then they're heading to Greece. Um, they're flying to Athens. I think Doke's most excited about that part of their trip. Um, I think he said he'd been there as a kid but didn't really appreciate it. And he's just really looking forward to seeing some of the places where Paul preached and walking up Mars Hill and going to Corinth and places like that. Um, and then they're coming back uh, after Athens. They'll go to Venice for a few days uh, and then back to Paris um, before they fly home on the 23rd. So, um, yeah, they're very grateful um, to the church for their generosity. And um, it's a well-deserved break for Doak. Um, you guys know this, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. Um, he is a dedicated man of God who loves this church and um, would do anything for it. Um, he works tirelessly um, day in and day out, um, preparing for Sundays, um, meeting with you, visiting you. Um, he's just an incredible man. And I've had the awesome privilege the last three years of getting to work alongside him and watch him week in and week out as he studies and pours over God's word in preparation for every Sunday. And it's just, it's awesome. Um, it's humbling for me to stand in this place. Um, I enjoy preaching. I'm glad that I don't have to do it every week. Um, but I do enjoy the opportunity. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the privilege to be here today. Um, and a few weeks ago, just before Easter, we began um, what I'm gonna do a series through the book of James, kind of walking through it verse by verse. Um, and I'll do that during the times throughout the year where I have opportunity to preach. And so it may take us several years to get through it, but that's okay. Um, today, we're going to continue in chapter one. And what I want to do is I want to, I want to kind of tie in what we did last time um, with what I'm going to do today. Um, but I want to read a portion of what we read last time, what we're going to do today, and what we're going to do next week, because they're all kind of one unit. They tie together, and I think context is important. And so if you have your Bible, look with me. Um, James chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 18. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. God, as we begin to walk through this passage and look at it, uh, I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to each one of us today. God, where hearts need to be softened, would you soften hearts? Where minds need to be opened, would you open minds? Meet us, Father, where we're at. Speak to each one of us. Let us hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... This whole section looks at the trials that we face in life today. And we're going to look at how we navigate those trials. Our focus today is going to be on verses 5 through 11. But like I said, I want to back up and I kind of want to recap what we did in verses 1 through 4. Tie it in with what we're going to do today. Um, And just as a reminder, just some background info um, in case you weren't here the first time. The book of James is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, He was a leader in the Jerusalem church. In all likelihood, he was the pastor of the church. Um, And it was written to Jewish believers, um, likely members of the Jerusalem church, so his church members, who had been scattered uh, due to persecution under Rome. It was written to encourage them, but I think even more so it was written to challenge them to live lives that are wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. Um, If you'll remember last time I mentioned um, one author his description of the book of James, he said this, it's a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. James is blunt. He is very direct. And he makes no apologies for either one. So let's jump in. If you're taking notes today, um, the first thing in navigating the trials is to have a joyful attitude. So right off the bat, in verse 2, James jumps into the deep end. He tells us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Some, of, some translations um, say to count it pure joy. A um, few things here. I think pure joy or all joy leaves no room for anything else. You think about pure gold. If something's made of pure gold. There's nothing else in it. It is gold. And the, the same idea here. We are to face our trials with pure joy. Nothing else in it at all. James, I think here, is clearly recognizing suffering. So he's not not telling us to play a mind game. Um, He's not telling us to try to keep ourselves feeling happy um, by denying the reality of the trials that we face. Denial is not what James is suggesting here in any way, shape, or form. 
Rather, he's saying, recognize the trial, accept it, and learn to rejoice in it. Because there's a goal here. There is a greater goal here, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Something else that pure joy doesn't allow is complaining. Praying for deliverance from a trial is absolutely appropriate. But doing so with a complaining spirit is far from what James envisions for the Christian. In the same way, there's no room for self-pity in pure joy either. Continuing in obedience to the Lord's commands would certainly be part of perseverance that James talks about. But doing so in self-pity is not worthy of the goal that James has in mind. Obeying while thinking, oh, poor me, is very different from obeying in pure joy. So what's the goal? The goal, he says here, is to be perfect. Now, this isn't sinless. It's not being free from sin. Um, We wrestle with sin in this life daily. What this perfection refers to is a maturity, a maturity in our faith, a maturity in Christ, a completeness that comes through that. To be mature in Christ, that is our goal. James, I think, honestly believes that in the very midst of painful trials in the Christian's life, there is a definite basis for joy. The goal of becoming mature in Christ um, is far more valuable than merely avoiding difficulties And therefore, we should consider it joy when trials come because this is how we reach the goal. We are called to joy. Let's not miss that today. And James is not the only one who says that in the New Testament. Um, Paul says a very similar thing in Romans chapter 5. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Peter also says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's 1 Peter 1, verse 6. Jesus taught us in one of his parables that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is so valuable that a man would rightfully sell everything that he has to obtain it, and that in doing so, he would do it in his joy. Jesus himself, I think, is an example for us in this. Um, Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went to the cross with joy, knowing what was coming after, knowing what it would accomplish. He went with joy because it was going to accomplish restoration between God and his people. It was going to provide a way out for people who would choose to follow him. And so he went to the cross with joy. Jesus, in his time walking this earth, never looked for trouble, but he always accepted it when it came for the joy that was set before him. So in navigating the trials of life, we do so with a joyful attitude because 
We know that going through the trials brings the maturity in Christ that God has called us to. And so that brings us to the second thing. Secondly, in navigating the trials is to have an understanding mind. Verse 3, James says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I kind of touched on this already, but I think it's worth repeating. Um, We have to perceive, we must perceive the reality and purpose of the trials that we go through. James says they are inevitable. Okay, notice in, in there, it doesn't say if you meet trials. It says when. They will come. They are going to come. You can count on it. And so we need to understand that reality, and we need to understand the purpose behind it. The trials that we face serve a purpose. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, I believe in getting into hot water. He said, I think it keeps you clean. Um, Sometimes there is no better test than the hot water of difficult circumstances. And I think this is why James is writing this book, to give us tests of living faith. James says that if your faith is genuine, it will prove itself in times of trouble. True faith is to sustain me when everything goes wrong. Having an understanding mind helps us to navigate the trials that come. Every trial that comes in your life becomes a test of your faith. To fail the test by wrongly responding to it allows it to become a temptation. Now James is going to address this later. We, we read it, but we'll get to it next week. But you can see how all of this ties together. So when talking about trials, James doesn't distinguish between internal and external trials. I think inevitably every external trial will soon become internal, no matter what that is. If it's you know, a difficult circumstance you're going through, a difficult person that you have to deal with, whatever the case might be, those external trials inevitably become internal trials. Um, often the real trial is when it gets into your mind and it starts to fester. Trials come in various kinds, just like James mentions here. They could come in the form of disappointments, frustrations, misunderstandings, unmet expectations, unfulfilled dreams, great loss, fear, criticism, etc. The list can go on. They may start on the outside, but they will end up on the inside. So we must have an understanding mind. We must understand the reality of the trials that we go through not simply trying to shove them to the side, pretending that they don't exist, but accepting it, learning from it. Thirdly, in navigating the trials is to have a submissive will. This is where we finished last time, and um, we talked about letting steadfastness have its full effect. That's what James says here in verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Steadfastness is that patient endurance. Um, We patiently endure the trials with a submissive will because this allows us to accept it from the Lord and learn what he wants us to learn. Let steadfastness finish its work. Let it grow you up. We have to grow up as Christians. It is time for us in the church to stop living this weak, self-centered 
so-called Christianity that many of us live. It's time to grow up. Remember what I said earlier about James wanting us to be wholehearted, devoted followers of Jesus. That means we're all in. That's what he's looking for, and that's what he's challenging the people to. That's what he's challenging us to. I believe that, the, that underlying all of what James says in this short book is the call of Christ on our lives to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. I think it's safe to say that part of taking up our cross includes the trials that we face in life. In John 16, Jesus tells the disciples that in this world, you will have trouble. But he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. We walk with Christ through thick and thin. We follow him no matter the cost because he is worth it. Do you know that today, church? He is worth it. He's worth the trial. He's worth the suffering. He is worth everything. It it reminds me of the old hymn that says, wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. We must submit fully and completely to him. And this only happens with a submissive will. Submitting our will to the will of the Father. Submitting to the will of the Father includes the trials of life that come our way. And again, I think Jesus sets the example for us in this. In Luke 22, he's in the garden on the night before he is to be crucified. And Luke tells us this. He says, and he, Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Is that the prayer of your heart? When you're in the midst of, of a difficult trial, when you're going through a tough time, is that the prayer of your heart? Not my will, but yours be done. So when navigating the trials of life, we must, one, have a joyful attitude. Two, we must have an understanding mind. Three, we need to have a submissive will. And then fourth, we must have a believing heart. Let's read this next section together, starting in verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. James here, in dealing with navigating the trials of life, turns his attention to wisdom. And this is something that I think is important to him because he's going to come back to it again in chapter 3. Wisdom is of such urgent importance for Christians in the midst of trials. And I think you would agree with me that a very common phrase that is often uttered from our mouths when we find ourselves in tough spot or a difficult situation is, I don't know what to do. How many of... How many times have we said that? You know, throw your arms up. I don't know what to do. 
I want you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles is in the Old Testament, comes after 1 and 2 Kings. Now I want to read uh, about King Jehoshaphat. He was a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, quite a, a remarkable chapter here, chapter 20. I want to begin re- reading in verse 1. So if you're there, um, you can follow along with me. Second Chronicles 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Maonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So here, King Jehoshaphat is faced with a formidable foe who is coming against him and his people. And what does he do? Verse 3 tells us, he set his face to seek the Lord. Now what does it say right before that? It says that he was afraid. We're afraid sometimes. We become afraid in circumstances and situations that we face. But how did he respond? He responded by seeking the Lord. He made the appropriate spiritual response. He, along with the nation, appealed to God. The initial response of many when facing trials of various kinds that James speaks of is to look for some other human resource to help. Who can I turn to? Where can I go? But our response should be that of Jehoshaphat, to seek the face of God. I love what he says to God at the end of verse 12. Jehoshaphat, in his cry to God, he says, For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I don't know what to do, God, but my eyes are on you. I don't know what's going to happen, 
but my eyes are on you. I trust you, and I'm going to keep my eyes on you. I think this was Peter's undoing when he stepped out of the boat when Jesus called him to walk on the water to him. His faith faltered because he took his eyes off of Jesus. He noticed the wind and the waves around him, and he began to sink because he took his eyes off of Jesus. Might I suggest to us this morning that we do not stand a chance when we take our eyes off of Jesus. We might manage for a little while. We might make it a little while. But inevitably, we will falter and we will sink if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus. Suffering easily pushes us into the confusion of self-doubt where we can begin to question our actions, motives, and even our capabilities. This self-doubt can be devastating. It can lead to questioning along these lines. Why did this happen to me? Where did I go wrong? Is God punishing me? Does God love me? We don't know what to do in the midst of that intense internal questioning, and our need for wisdom is great. Suffering can also awaken fear within us. The fear that things are out of control and that whatever we hold dear might be lost. That's what happened to Jehoshaphat. He was caught up in fear. But his response was right. He sought the Lord. When we don't do that, fear can be absolutely crippling. We need wisdom. In moments of anger, depression, hopelessness, we need wisdom. So turn back over with me to James and let's talk about this wisdom. The word for wisdom that James mentions here refers to knowledge, insight, and deep understanding. But very importantly, don't miss this, it carries with it the idea of practical application. When you're in the middle of a trial and you don't know what to do, James tells us to ask God for wisdom. This is supernatural divine wisdom that's needed to understand the trials of life. And it's not available in the world around us. You're not going to find it anywhere else. So let's look at this wisdom in Scripture that, that's ascribed to God. And let's, let's read a few places where it talks about this. Paul says in Romans eleven, thirty-three to 36, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Psalm 104 verse 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Everything that he has made, he made in his wisdom. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, this is where Daniel has an encounter with King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar invites him in and asks him to interpret his dream. But before he interprets the dream, Nebuchadnezzar demands that um, Daniel tell him his dream. Now, interpreting a dream is hard enough. Interpreting a dream that you don't know um, is next to impossible. And um, 
But the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and this is his response to God. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Revelation seven eleven and 12 says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then in Proverbs chapter 2, these are the words of Solomon. He says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. James tells us to ask for wisdom. I don't know if you remember this from last time, but I mentioned that there are about 50 commands in the short book of James, and this is one of them. Ask. It's an imperative here. If you lack wisdom, ask. Now, this isn't just trying to dismiss the problem with a simplistic solution. No, I think it is facing the problem with the solution, with Christ on our side. Looking to him for wisdom. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. That's what Jehoshaphat said. He knew that help was not coming from anywhere else. His eyes were fixed on Jesus. Now the word that James uses here that's translated ask, I think is kind of a cool word. It carries with it an aspect of vicinity. Or proximity. So the idea is drawing near to God to ask. Um, I was thinking about this this week, you know, various things that we would ask people for. Um, sometimes it might be just something real simple, and you might just, you know, shoot somebody a text or send them an email saying, hey, what do you think about this? Um, what would you do in this situation kind of? Um, but then there are other situations that you find yourself in that are difficult and more challenging, um, where maybe something is weighing heavily on your heart, and you know that a text or an email is just not going to cut it. Maybe you get in your car and you drive across town to see a friend. Um, You knock on the door and say, hey, I'm wrestling with this. I'm really struggling with this. Can we talk? That's the idea that this word carries here, that we're drawing near to God. It's not this distant, 
hey, God, what do you think about this? No, it's a, it's a heartfelt drawing near to him to seek his face. This is one of the many connections um, that James has with the Sermon on the Mount. I think I mentioned that last time too. Numerous parallels that James draws from um, Matthew 5 through 7. And this is one. Matthew 7, verse 7 through 8, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. By instructing his readers to ask for wisdom, I think James is pointing us to God's amazing grace. There's four things here that James says. One, God is the one who is giving. God gives wisdom. You're not going to find it anywhere else. God is the one that gives. Secondly, God gives to all. He gives to everyone who asks. Thirdly, God gives generously. He gives us what we need. He pours it out. He doesn't hold back. And fourthly, God gives without finding fault. You can ask God for the wisdom that you need without fear because God gives without holding your failures or lack of wisdom against you. This is the assurance that we have as believers when we approach God. He does not respond to our needs by reminding us of our faults. He simply doesn't do that. Christ has made atonement for our sin and we receive justification by responding to him in faith. Not by trying with good works to become righteous enough to deserve his favor. He gives generously to all without reproach, without finding fault. I think that the promise of wisdom is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. What more could we want than divine wisdom, God's wisdom, to be able to understand and respond properly to every trial of life? No wisdom needed for our perseverance through trials is ever withheld from the person who asks. I think this also goes back to the passage in the Sermon on the Mount. In, that, in the conclusion there, J- Jesus says this, of which or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We must ask. Verse 6 instructs us to ask With faith, not doubting. We must ask with confident trust. I think if we don't understand the trial that we're going through, we probably haven't asked God with unwavering faith for wisdom. Let me say that again. If if we don't understand the trial that we're going through, we probably haven't asked God for wisdom. Over the last couple of weeks, Doak has been talking about how to recognize and identify false teachers um, as he's been working through Second Peter. I think there are, there are distortions of this teaching from this passage in James that we need to recognize. Um, the first is what is commonly known as the name it and claim it philosophy. It basically says that whatever you need, you should name it in faith and claim it as given to you. 
But I think that this is a misplacement of faith and it raises unbiblical expectations. People who practice this are placing their faith not in God, but in the force of their own believing. And then they expect to be free from their hardships or sufferings or trials. And I think James is prescribing something that is much different here. We are to put our faith in God and God alone who gives us the wisdom necessary to navigate the trials that we're in. Another distortion is to take James's warning against doubt superficially. Taking it and taking it to, to recognize a willful suppression of our mental doubts. I kind of touched on this earlier, but you know, just trying to push it all to the side as if it's not there. Um, I think this can become an unrecognized attempt to manipulate God by our own power of positive thinking. But this can leave you in bondage to fear, afraid of your own thoughts, and afraid that God might hold your thoughts against you and not grant the wisdom needed. You can see how crippling that could be. And I think this is a perversion of the very truth that James is teaching here, that God gives freely without finding fault. What James is writing about here is much deeper than surface thoughts. Doubt here is in immediate contrast to faith. The warning about doubt is to expose a basic soul condition of unbelief. It's described here by the term double-minded in verse 8. And that literally means to be of two minds. It means a double-souled person. A person whose heart's loyalties are divided. The doubt then is a swaying back and forth from self-reliance to God-reliance. That's why James uses this illustration of the wave on, on the sea that's tossed about and driven by the wind. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament. Um, you'll probably remember 1 Kings chapter 18, we find the very famous confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now, King Ahab was a wicked king who um, had turned the hearts of the people away from Yahweh. And so Elijah gathers with the people and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel to have this incredible showdown. But before the showdown, Elijah addresses the people and he says this to them. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. These people were double-minded and that's the picture that James is painting here. They were going back and forth between God and Baal, God and Baal. The person who doubts is not looking to God from a stance of faith. And for this person, there's no promise that God will give wisdom. The testing of faith develops perseverance. But doubt or unbelief makes a person unstable. That word unstable means restless, unsettled. It could also mean insubordinate. And I think that's a good description here. Someone who is insubordinate is someone who doesn't follow orders. And I think this is key, and I want you to hear this. When we, when we ask God for wisdom, we must have faith that he will provide it. And we must be willing to act on the wisdom that is given. Remember, we're talking about wisdom that carries with it the idea of practical application. So wisdom and knowledge are two different things. We can fill our, our heads with knowledge all day long. Um, information is at our fingertips whenever we want it. 
you might gain some knowledge in this room today. You might learn something new. But the question becomes, what are you going to do with that knowledge that you gained? Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge in a real-life situation. How many of you have kids who have come to you at times to ask for your help um, with something only to then decide that they don't like what you have to suggest or the advice that you give? Any hints? Yeah? I, uh, happens to me on just about a daily basis. Um, they hear what you have to say and then they decide you don't know what you're talking about. How could you possibly know what you're talking about? Um, and then they move on. How many of us have done this with God? If we ask for wisdom, we should be prepared to act on it. Because believe me, he knows a lot more than we do. He knows a lot better than we do about everything. So if we ask him for wisdom, we should be prepared to act on it, to act on what he shows us. We can't go to God and say, God, I need your wisdom. And he provides it to us, and we say to him, I actually, I don't like that. that doesn't, that's not going to work this time. Maybe we'll try again next time. No. If we're drawing near to him to ask for wisdom, we have to be prepared to act on it when it's received. So in order to navigate the trials of life, we must have a believing heart. We must have an undivided faith that simply believes that God is a sovereign, loving God who will supply everything necessary for understanding and enduring the trials that come. And that brings us to our last thing this morning. In order to navigate the trials of life, we must have a humble spirit. As we move into the, to the last section, James addresses two groups of people. First, he addresses the lowly brother. Lowly here refers to the financially poor. The scattered believers that James is writing to were victims of persecution. And so it's likely that poverty would have been common among them. In all likelihood, they may have had to flee their homes on a moment's notice, taking very little with them. They are told to boast in their exaltation. Boasting is about a privilege or possession. And John MacArthur says this about this section. He says, It is the joy of legitimate pride. The poor Christian may have nothing in the material world to rejoice about, but he can rejoice in his high position in the spiritual realm. He may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the living water. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has been received by God. He may have no home here, but he has a glorious home in the life to come. And in this life he may have trials, but God is using them to perfect and exalt him spiritually. True riches are ours in Christ Jesus. So poverty is a short-lived trial to be endured as we look forward to our future exaltation. Don't look for your joy in worldly circumstances and possessions. Seek your joy in the fact that God has saved you and is moving you towards Christ-likeness. Secondly, he addresses the rich. Well-to-do Christians uh, who don't often experience the trials related to poverty should rejoice in their humiliation. 
The trials they experience help them to realize that their possessions can't buy true happiness and contentment. Their dependence ought to be on the true riches of God's grace. Whether rich or poor, trials humble all believers to the same level of dependency on God. Money doesn't buy people out of their problems. It may solve some economic ones. But equality is driven home through trials. When you lose a daughter, a son, a wife, a husband, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. No amount can buy your way out of that trial. We should not exalt those who have much over those who have little because earthly possessions are inadequate to buy us what we need spiritually. Christian faith brings perspective to the inequities of life. We all know that a huge gap exists between the rich and the poor. And people often evaluate themselves and others by the criteria of wealth. James is saying that even though some of you may be poor, monetarily speaking, you are wealthy beyond compare as a child of God and co-heir with Christ. Those who are rich need to be reminded of how fleeting and transitory life is. Our worth is found in God, not in our bank accounts. James gives an illustration to end this section to show how fleeting the riches of this world can be. Like the flowers of the field, they can be here one day and gone the next. He pulls that from Isaiah chapter 40. Whether rich or poor, we should approach life with a humble spirit, which will allow us to accept God's greater wisdom and recognize that what's valuable in life is eternal. So five things today that we talked about in navigating the trials of life. Number one, have a joyful attitude. Count it all joy. Count it pure joy. Number two, have an understanding mind. Know this. Perceive the reality and purpose of the trial. Number three, have a submissive will. Let steadfastness have its full effect in you. Number four, have a believing heart. Ask in faith. And number five, have a humble spirit. Accept God's greater wisdom. As we close today, I want to share um, a story about a friend of ours because I think her story demonstrates so well um, what we've talked about today in navigating the trials of life. Uh, We have a good friend. Her name is Gina. Um, She's a single lady who has served as a missionary in Scotland for, I don't know, it's got to be coming up on 20 years. Gina's an amazing lady. She has planted herself in a part of Glasgow where the average person would never step foot. A difficult area where drug addiction is rife. Um, Poverty is plentiful. um, Where brokenness abounds. And she has chosen to plant her life there. She loves people and she loves pointing people to Jesus. A number of years ago, um, she received the dreaded news that um, she had cancer. And over the course of, I don't I've lost track of time now, but she has gone through cancer four different times 
Um, she went, I remember the first time she went through it, she came home and had cancer treatment and went through all of that. And um, God in his grace brought healing to her body and the tumors were gone. She was cancer free, went back to Scotland and continued her work there. Well, this happened two more times. Um, and it just seemed, you know, you just ask this que- those questions sometimes. Why God? Why does this continue to happen? Um, this last time has been the most severe and she's, she's been home now in the States for a while battling this cancer. And, but I guess a little over a month ago, um, she posted on Facebook, she'd been in the hospital, had a scan done, and miraculously, the tumors were gone. Um, I mean, it was quite unexpected for everybody. They're just, the scans were clear. Praise God. And um, so she and a good friend of hers got on a plane to go back to Scotland to visit for a little while. Um, she wanted to see people that she hadn't seen for a while and reconnect. Um, and she got to do that and hug people's necks and love on them for a few days. About four days into the trip, she started not feeling well again. Went to the hospital in Glasgow and cancer was back. And, I, you know, I, I just think that that was, a comp- seems strange to say this, but that was an act of God's grace. That one day, the scan is clear and she has the opportunity to go back to Scotland, the place that she loved, to see people that she loved and invested in and poured into one last time. And she's come home now. They, they got her on a flight, brought her back home, and evidently doctors have told her that there's nothing else that they can do. And so she's, they've moved her into her mom's house, and she's living under hospice care right now. But Gina is an incredible woman. The years that we've watched her walk through this, I've never heard her complain. I've never heard her utter an angry word under her breath. She has approached it with joy. And her favorite line has become kind of her catchphrase for life is, the best is yet to come. She has said that all along the way. The best is yet to come. In this life or the next, either way, the best is yet to come. This is, this is some of her words I wanted to read to you. She said, cancer is not my biggest problem in life. She said the same about um, the people that she lived around. Their drug addictions, their, their, it's not the biggest problem in their lives. Sin is their greatest problem in their lives. And Jesus is the solution for that. She said, cancer is not my biggest problem in life. Cancer does nothing to heaven. Cancer cannot touch heaven. Cancer cannot touch my salvation. God's goodness is not defined by my health. And my hope is not in the restoration of my body. My hope is only in him. That's what she's lived by. You know, in all likelihood, in the days to come, she's going to close her eyes one last time, and she's going to open them in the presence of her Savior. And he's going to look at her and say, well done. She personifies what we've looked at this morning, and I think... Someone rightly posted on Facebook um, just this last week about her. She said to her on her Facebook wall, she said, 
Gina, James 1 verse 12 is you. And we're going to get to this next week, but I want, to, I want to close by reading this. He said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's been excruciating to watch Gina. And I know that you, you, have, you have family, you have friends that have gone through similar circumstances in life. And it's excruciating to watch that. But it's inspiring to watch Gina. It's inspiring to watch her navigate the trial with joy. Choosing joy. Because she knows what's coming. She knows that she gets to sit at her Savior's feet. And so, that's my challenge to all of us today. Let's choose joy. Life's tough. Life's hard. It throws stuff at us all the time. But when we learn to navigate the trials, man, life can be so full. Gina's battled cancer for years, but her life has been so full. That's the life that I want to live. That's the life that I want us to live as a church. I want us to be wholehearted, devoted followers of Jesus. When the trials come and we throw our hands up and say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are fixed on you. Let that be the cry of our hearts because he's worth it. Let's pray.